This is the Impact Report. I'm your host, Katie Ellman. The Impact Report brings together students and faculty in Bard College's MBA in Sustainability program with leaders in business, sustainability, finance, social entrepreneurship, and more. These conversations go live the first and third Friday of each month. This week, I'm joined by Bard MBA's Heather Bowden, and we're speaking with Alice Mann, founder of Mann Advisors and author of Future First, How Successful Leaders Turn Innovation Challenges into New Value Frontiers. I was wondering if you could start by telling us about your professional background. Sure. So I started my consulting career doing leadership development in the late 90s for an investment firm called Hambrick & Quist in San Francisco. And Hambrick & Quist financed some of the big successes of the dot-com era. So it was a really exciting time. We were underwriting the early IPOs of tech companies like Apple and Amazon. And back then, we didn't know exactly how big they were going to get. But then in the 1999, H&Q was bought by Chase Manhattan Bank. And everything changed for me because suddenly I was part of a huge company. And there were all these opportunities that I didn't expect and that were really surprising to me. So I got to work on really big restructuring projects during the merger with J.P. Morgan. And then a couple years later in 2004, I went through a merger with Bank One, and I was working on global operating models. And I was able to move to New York and uh, start my master's and then my PhD at uh, Columbia in organizational psychology. And I really, it really was how I got introduced to organization design, which is what I went out on my own to do in 2005. So I left the bank and I started my own consulting firm called Man Advisors now. And I then I met uh, Amy Cates, who has a boutique or design firm in, the, in New York City called Cates Kessler. And for the last 11 years, really the last 13 years since I left the bank, I've done all kinds of organization design work with big corporate clients as well as large nonprofits and social enterprises and mission-driven companies. And so I've seen how um, all of the different tools and different frameworks work across different sectors and different size companies and different stages of development. So that um, it seems pretty intuitive that you went from global operating models to doing organizational um, organizational uh, design. And I'm wondering, um, when it comes to your own company, in Future First, you talk about a lot of the strategies to help companies be more future first. What are some of the um, future first principles or the leadership mindsets? that you bring to your practice, but also that um, maybe if you could also talk about what you do in your own firm to uh, exemplify those principles. Sure. So um, a couple of years ago, I got the idea to write this book, Future First, and it really came out of the 
combination of my background in tech innovation and massive financial services and social science research and then org design. But what really hit me and what catalyzed the idea of the book and Future First was um, in 2012, I'd moved out to the suburbs and I had uh, twins and um, a, a baby daughter and I was, I was still consulting and then Superstorm Sandy came along and totally thrashed the East Coast, uh, including New York. And, you know, there was a lot of damage done that we forget about now to over half a million homes, more than 200 people lost their lives. And I was personally really shaken. Uh, we only lost power for a couple of weeks, but I remember seeing the electric poles ripped off the side of my house because of the wind. Uh, you know, it was, a real, it was a real disaster zone where I live. And it really hit me then that climate change was creating more and more extreme weather events and that this was just really a taste of what was to come and that if it was left unchecked, uh, storms like Superstorm Sandy and, and other extreme weather events were, were going to increase and really affect my kids' generation. And so I started to think about what I could do and that was how I went and talked to over 60 business leaders and thought leaders in the field of sustainable business in some form or other. So I talked to impact investors, but I talked to people running. Um, for example, I talked to Iban Goodstein, who runs the BARD sustainability program, and a lot of then entrepreneurs um, in who had started their own companies. And that's how I identified, it was really a research process for myself to identify what were these companies doing right in terms of their mindset and their business capabilities and their business practices. What were some of the things that I could help companies who wanted to develop these uh, be successful at? And so the future first mindset in, uh, elements in my book and also the practices are really what I observed and what I discovered from the stories of leaders who are already doing this. You mentioned uh, having your daughter and one of my favorite quotes from your book is where you were talking with Maria Blair from the White House Council on Environmental Quality and she said to you that my biggest fear is that on my deathbed my girls will say to me, Mom, why didn't you do more to stop climate change? How hard would it have been to, get, to give up a few more things for us? And um, can you give us some of the examples of the principles from the Future First that you developed from all this research that you did? Absolutely. So I love that quote too, and it really speaks to the heart of the book, which is, um, you know, taking my expertise in org design and applying that to designing companies of the future that really think about these future challenges as innovation opportunities. So what I discovered is that talking about talking to companies about climate change as uh, you know just a negative problem becomes it's hard to speak the language of business that way. And so what I discovered the companies that were doing this well, really embraced things like climate change and the need for using resources differently. Um, the uh, other examples of challenges are 
a more globalized workforce and creating more inclusive um, talent strategies. The companies and the leaders who embrace these challenges as innovation opportunities are ones that get excited about it and ones that really um, are able to then innovate within the framework of social and environmental limits. Instead of pushing those limits aside and ignoring them, they treat them just like any other uh, limit that you might think of in a commercially successful enterprise, which is if we have to make this thing profitable, we can only spend so much. So uh, similarly, I think taking that type of framework around innovation challenges and saying, well, there's limits to what kinds of materials we can use or to how we can impact the environment or how we, um, how we invest in the people who uh, produce whatever it is that we make. And then the innovation comes out of that. So that's one of the practices is embracing sustainability as an innovation challenge. And that kind of leads to the other ones. So one of the other ones is overcoming what I call presentism, which is about not just short-term thinking in business, and people talk about that a lot, but I'm thinking about actually the way that so many of us are kind of overwhelmed with information and data and, and are very captured in the present to the point that it's really hard to actually wrap our minds around the changes that are already coming in the next 10 or more years. Climate change is a great example of that, where it's easy to sort of deny it um, or to think that it's further out than it is. But there are other things too, like water, water scarcity or the way that certain resources will become depleted and we'll need to find other resources or things that are toxic in supply chains that, that, need to be, uh, that we need to find solutions for today and not put off. And then another one of those elements is developing integrative thinking. This one I love, which is basically not polarizing, um, either thinking about things only from a traditional kind of uh, business perspective in terms of uh, financial metrics or thinking about things only in terms of doing good and um, scaling solutions to cha global challenges, but really how do you do both and how do you come up with solutions that integrate both of those mentalities that, that it's not either or. And what I love about integrative thinking is that it cuts through. It's a solution to a lot of the polarized thinking that we see in our political and our cultural climate now that I think um, makes people stuck in terms of finding solutions because they're, you know, they're either all left or they're all right or they're all business or they're all um, social responsibility. So I love the idea of doing both. And I think that really came out of my background of you know, really being surprised at how much um, I enjoyed and I've enjoyed working in the corporate world where there are a lot of resources and where people do things efficiently and where having financial metrics is very motivating um, and then also thinking about how mission-driven organizations can think about business being commercially successful so that they can scale. So I love thinking about those types of problems, and I think the companies that do this well come up with some really interesting solutions. Is and then the fourth to... element is expanding the values that drive business decisions. So I think this is always happening. There's always a set of values behind any major business decision, but they're often not explicit. So if a company chooses to 
use uh, certain chemicals and there's going to be pollution to that or, there's, or it's going to affect their workers, they're making a values-based decision. And so the idea here is that if you broaden and you be more explicit about those values and then you also draw from the values of your stakeholders and your customers, you may find that, the, that you can drive more value uh, by speaking to a broader set of values and by including a broader set of values explicitly in your decision making. And then the final one is going beyond one company and one leader at a time. So what I found about the organization development and psychology field that I come from is that it was really created in the early you know, 1950s and, and before when companies were simpler and smaller and they had less impact on uh, beyond their local context. And now that companies are really much more global and they're much more embedded in larger systems and they're more integrated with other companies, so offshoring, outsourcing, you've got multiple companies nested within a company, that our solutions and the way that we approach organization change and design and, and effectiveness needs to go beyond just one leader or one company at a time. And that companies, you know, Tesla is one of the obvious examples where they partner, they're partnering with Google on, you know, self-automated cars. Um, they're partnering with Solar City, although they bought them on thing on solar solutions for your house, for your car, for your battery, and that more and more customers are buying these integrated solutions that come from more than one company. And so we want the, those companies to be collaborating and, and partnering together. And that, that is what actually builds new ecosystems or changes business ecosystems like energy or transportation, mobility, apparel, food. It is these collaborations across different um, entities. And one of the things that I was excited to discover in my journey with the interviews for the book is that the smaller companies sometimes are coming up with very innovative solutions and then partnering with the big companies to scale them. And the big, sometimes the bigger companies are seeing it's, it's, um, it's a smaller investment to partner with a smaller company and let them do the innovation and then once it's got legs, to, to be able to use the infrastructure of the bigger company to, to scale it. I love the um, how you talk touch on how companies see these climate change occurrences as challenges, and you're really helping them see them as opportunities. Um, when it comes to the five points that you make, which ones are harder for these companies to grasp? Which ones have you struggled to explain and get them on board? With. I think expanding the values that drive decisions is one. I think people get overcoming presentism in terms of thinking about short-termism. And I, I've actually been really pleasantly surprised to speak with and hear from a number of CEOs recently of large multi-billion dollar companies that they're thinking 20 years out. And they understand that innovation and disruptive innovation is coming in their industry and they need to really be aware of and thinking about future trends in that. Um, so I think that one, I think people can connect with um, short, the problems and the challenges of short-term thinking. Expanding values is a little bit harder because it really is about including 
um, human inputs like emotions, perceptions, preferences as part of and explicitly using that as part of what drives business decision making. One example I think that, that a lot of people can relate to is the purpose-driven brands. So uh, Unilever, for example, has this whole suite of purpose-driven brands that are growing faster than some of their other brands because they have, they have a message, they have, uh, they have some social change that's embedded. Um, so, you know, examples are um, the hand-washing um, uh, movement, basically, I think, that, that Unilever has promoted through some of their products um, to, to reduce uh, the spread of germs and diseases by promoting healthy um, hand-washing routines, in, in, whether it's in hospitals or homes. Um, so having a purpose that's wrapped around the brand is one way that speaks to people. But I think you need really good examples that show some sort of business value to um, help business leaders understand that one in particular. We do spend a lot of time in school studying those examples. And mm. um, it's interesting how embedded into a lot of business people's minds it is that it's not possible to do these things without trade-offs or it seems outrageous that a purpose-driven brand would do better than um, a more uh, single bottom line driven brand. Mm -hmm. When it comes to the reactions of your clients, um, what have been some of the surprising ones that you've been experiencing while you walk them through this process? So, for me, the surprise is actually that I think a lot of companies are trying to think future forward. Um, I think the gap is around really building those capabilities to do that. And so there's a lot of variation. You see bigger companies like Nike can invest in they innovate their innovation accelerator and they've got over a thousand people there and they allow those people to kind of have free reign over their their ideas and in, invest in the time it takes to really try out a new idea and i think that they understand the challenge of embracing innovation sustainability as an innovation opportunity and so for them it's it's really, it's a sweet spot is finding the higher performing shoe that also uses less materials. Um, and, and there's sort of a win-win there. So I think that's a great example of integrative thinking and embracing sustainability as an innovation challenge. I think where, what's, what is challenging for a lot of CEOs of, of traditional corporations where I am consulting is to really think about how do we invest in people who are thinking about the future? How do we invest in people who are gathering data about the future? How do we figure out, they know what the, what the risk is. The risk is that they will miss opportunities and that their competitors will go with some sort of disruptive technology and they won't and then they'll leave money on the table and they won't realize it for five years until that market grows in China, let's say. So the challenge is, well, what do you, how do you get them to then commit and invest now in a lot of it is in the talent and the people to think about the future, which is uncertain and unknown. And you can gather data and you can look at trends, but you still need to give people a fair amount of free reign 
to um, invest in different ideas and to, to, to follow different ideas and trends. And I think really sometimes what makes a better CEO is their ability to really pay attention to those future trends. And I think it may be hard for them to invest in teams and really entrust uh, teams of people to be able to help them do that. It's a, a bit of a relief for me to hear that thinking future first can be taught, especially to these CEOs, and that um, it's not just uh, a talent deficit, but that we can actually create that talent. Mm. So it sounds like there isn't enough talent that thinks future first to meet the demand. How have you been able to um, find or create, we talk a lot about diversity, um, how in, within the uh, framework of the, uh, increasing business diversity have you been able to find this talent? I think that there is an opportunity that already exists within a lot of companies that's untapped. So I'm going to use Nike as an example because they're in the news right now. And I, I wrote an article about them recently. They, they, they are very strong in innovation, particularly in certain areas of the business. But there is a lot of um, diverse talent, uh, gender and racially diverse talent that goes untapped there. In other words, they're not getting everybody's ideas or hearing everyone's ideas equally because of the way that the culture operates and the way that they're designed, really. Um, my understanding is that, and what I've discovered, actually, I've done some uh, diversity studies for investment, private investment firms looking at why, let's say, they don't have enough women at the partner level. and what I found through my own research and clients is that some of the best practices in leadership and management and organization design create uh, a more level playing field so that everybody can uh, participate and have a seat at the table and have their voices heard based on their role in the organization, based on their experience, based on their expertise, rather than based on informal relationships and who has power informally in that culture, often based not necessarily on their role or on their ability, but based on their skin color, based on their gender, based on their seniority and their relationship. I think we're in a fascinating time where there's an opportunity for companies to fall back on really best practices and leadership, which is about creating um, a fair environment where employees are treated equally or equitably and um, you create a psychological safety on teams by having a leader treat everybody fairly and according to their role as opposed to according to who they feel more comfortable with or who they sort of informally give power to. And there's a huge already untapped, what I think of as value, really being left on the table. Um, I, another example is, I think, with the Me Too movement, there is, you know, we're now seeing that there has been this sort of what's really a social externality, which is that sexual harassment in the workplace really can have long-term effects on female as well as male employees sometimes and um, dampen their career aspirations, reduce their productivity over time, 
um, not uh, allow them to get the kind of raises and to have the level of performance that they're capable of. And that, to me, is value that's being left on the table. It, up until recently, has been treated as, you know, the cost of business as usual. But I think it's coming now to the forefront of people's public awareness that 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 that's a that's a there's a huge cost there to to organizations and if they have to let go of expensive leaders because of their uh, participation in in this kind of uh, workforce culture that allows this then that in and of itself is is very costly and that's probably just the tip of the iceberg in a lot of a lot of these companies in terms of what it's costing their culture not to address issues like sexual harassment or not to address issues like creating a, an environment that is inclusive and that that brings the best ideas to the table. I love how you mentioned um, the Me Too movement and how um, that definitely does have impacts in the workplace. And I'm at a conference right now in Baltimore where yesterday we focused on social innovation and um, one of the debates that folks had was how are women silent or are they just not being heard? And something that we realized was that women have always been speaking up. It's just that no one's been listening. Mm-hmm. And that's one of my favorite shifts that um, I feel so privileged to be experiencing right now. You mm-hmm. uh, mentioned equity. It seems like when it comes to values, equity is something that pretty much any company could benefit from. Are there any other values that you think uh, really are universal across business? Wow, that's a good question. Uh, I definitely think that innovation is, you know, being innovative is, is an aspiration of just about any company in any industry. And um, being able to manage risks, right? So those, those kind of are, you know, two sides of the coin. And what I found in my interviews for my book is that the companies that can um, treat some of these what have been considered externalities, like whether it's sexual harassment or climate change, um, as opportunities for innovation and as obvious long-term risks, you know, they're not going away. It's, there's not a, it's not a 5% chance it's going to affect your company. You know, it's like a 100% chance at some point in, in the next 10 years, right? So getting out ahead of those things, um, I think another example, the recent example in the news is Facebook. Like Facebook has treated a lot of these um, uh, you know, privacy of data, um, meddling in the in the in the presidential election um, or the the Brexit vote as externalities. That we're not a media company. A year ago, you would have talked to Mark Zuckerberg and he would have said, "We're not a media company. We're not responsible for what third parties are doing with our data or or, or with um, with our what's outside of our company." And now, I think a lot of those things are those issues are coming back. Uh, into Facebook and the leadership is being asked to really take responsibility for them and to rethink their, either rethink their business model or, you know, they have a couple choices now. They can, so future first would be let's rethink our business model and um, listen to our customers and what, and, and rebuild trust with them, which is 
basically what allows Facebook to do what they do is the trust that they build and the connections that they build through user communities. And if, um, or, you know, they can fight government regulation and they can, you know, put put it off the inevitable changes that they'll need to make at some point around at least privacy and transparency, if not moving to a subscription model or some other business model that gives users complete control over their data. So that, to me, that's like those things, those changes are coming, just like climate change and and the need for a more inclusive uh, workforce um, culture. But some companies will lean into it and get ahead of it and be innovative around it. And some companies will resist it and try to get as much value as they can from their existing business model. When it comes to uh, externalities, I'm wondering how, how could the assessment of externalities be an indicator of economic or business health? And do you have any examples of companies that are um, assessing externalities? Well, I think you have the classic examples now of Walmart and McDonald's even recently announcing that they're committing to reducing carbon um, in their uh, in their supply chain and in their franchises by 36 percent um, from 2015 to 2030, and they're making real com- commitments to science-based targets. Um, I think Walmart has been doing this for a while as well in their supply chain and with their suppliers. So I think that is something that they can measure, and so it's a little bit easier than some of the social externalities, which are harder to measure. I think you have the classic examples of Nike and Apple working in their supply chains and with their outsourced factories to set standards, and and that is also measurable. I think some of these, I I think the, the reason that I put risk management and innovation together as as values that that need to be um, considered together is that externalities are often what's ignored and what's kind of what's denied and where there's a blind spot until there is a an obvious cost to the to the business so i think the me too movement is a great example of something that's been there all along and companies have ignored it and not acted on it or actively denied it and then now it's actually um, the changes in the in the culture have made it um, too costly to keep executives who have a history of sexual harassment or misconduct. So I so future first would be get out ahead of those things, see them coming, um, and then make the changes before you have to um, pay the price. We uh, spend a lot of time at school learning how to quantify what has been previously thought to be unquantifiable. And mm. so you brought up some really good examples of that, um, equity and equity in particular. Um, when we're thinking about McDonald's and these other companies that are trying to use less packaging and they, they set these goals, one of the uh, things you talk about in your book is um, a quote from one of Etsy's first employees, Matt um, Stinchcomb. Am I saying that right? Mm-hmm. Yes. And he talks about how a lot of businesses will push 30% less packaging. It's better, but it's still not good. And mm-hmm. I'm wondering how in your practice 
do you balance this sense of urgency around these issues, but also trying to meet businesses where they're at? Yes. So my consulting hat um, tells me that if you're working directly with a client, you you need to meet them where they're at, and you can challenge them up to a point that and and they you need to hear what. Uh, what they're ready for. But in my writing and in my thinking bigger picture about whole industries or ecosystems, let's say energy, it's very exciting to find examples where a company like Tesla has developed a new market in electric cars that's really growing rapidly or in renewable energy. And to see these examples that, again, are not, they're not just one company so when you're consulting, you're working with one company at a time. When you're thinking, you know, broader um, change in, in industries, you know, I look for these patterns, which are when do some of these solutions, um, how do they get catalyzed, and then how do they actually get legs and, and open up a new market that starts to grow? So the book is about, some of it is about that, and some of it is about working directly within companies and with leaders. That's a really good point how uh, your book is really what all the business leaders should read. <laughs> but um, in your you. daily practice, you really do have to. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned a lot of books that um, I, you know, you're preaching to the choir here. <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, well, I uh, firmly believe that sustainable business consulting is the wave of the future. Like it's not like businesses, a lot of businesses are not clamoring for this yet. But the reason I wrote this book is my future first mentality, which is that I think that there will be events around climate, there will be changes um, that will start to impact businesses to the point, like the Me Too movement, that they're, they're clamoring for um, consulting around how to change some of these things. And one area that there is already a lot of work being done is in supply chains. So I think it's because it does speak to cost efficiencies, which is, you know, the language of business. And, and then, you know, so to be able to gain cost efficiencies as well as to do the right thing and to set standards and to avoid um, unexpected costly mistakes or um, issues with reputation because something comes out in your supply chain. I want to, I want to end with, a really positive note. <laughs> um, this has all been really positive and uplifting for me, and I, I hope for the audience. But um, it seems like a lot of the intract the problems that we thought were intractable are actually tractable. Um, for the audience, can you uh, deliver a message on um, what they can do to contribute to? Um, which problems are being solved right now and actually are, uh, they can actually be called to now um, versus what are the real needs that we haven't even been able to crack at all? So I will share the advice that has worked for me, which is I did a, a writing program a few years ago with a social enterprise in New York City called the Op-Ed Project. And they helped to get... Um, women and underrepresented groups um, to submit and get published opinion pieces in the most influential outlets 
um, in the world with the idea being that, you know, if we're not submitting, we're not, you know, we're not getting our voices out there and that we're then only hearing um, the same uh, or, or a smaller set of, of opinions and perspectives. What I learned in that program and what I really applied and how I ended up writing this book was figure out what your greatest expertise is and what you are most passionate and excited about. And don't worry about doing what's right or exactly what there's a market for or what is already needed because you might create something new if you put those things together. And then go out and apply that. Apply your greatest expertise to the areas that you're most interested in where you think you can have the greatest impact. And that was kind of the formula that I used that got me to write the book, which was I can take what I know about organization design, which is one of my greatest areas of expertise, and writing, which I love doing, and apply it to the private sector where I think there is the greatest opportunity for impact on the challenges that I care the most about solving. Climate change, the future of the planet and of the workforce and of various industries really for the next generation, which is my kids. Spot on and... I'm taking your advice to heart, Alice. <laughs> okay. And another thing I would add to that is there's there's no wrong place to apply this kind of socially responsible business thinking. Like you can do this in an oil company. You can do it in a big corporation. You can do it with a startup. You can do it in academia. What matters is that you're applying what you do best and what you enjoy doing and what you're passionate about because – the same changes are needed in all of those different places. And I think sometimes we get tracked to think, okay, well, if I have progressive business values, I should go work with progressive companies. And that's the only place where I can do this. And that may not be the place where you're most needed or where you could have the biggest impact. That's an excellent point. And uh, in a way, it's all our responsibility now because we're all becoming so aware of these issues. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Alice. Future First is available wherever books are sold. Learn more about Man Advisors and their services by visiting manadvisors.com. Join us for the next episode of the Impact Report on Friday, May 18th, when we'll be speaking with Ali Kenny of Burton. Bard MBA in Sustainability is one of a select few graduate programs globally that fully integrates sustainability into a core business curriculum. Learn more at mba.bard.edu.